Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Leith Ulabi, Research Director Udemy. We talked to Leith about his career and education start in anthropology and his transition from academic to applied research, focusing on the quick wins to build social capital and value to accelerate integration in a business ecosystem, adapting academic ethnographic methods to the quick-paced environment of the applied work, how to mitigate reflexivity with politics, meaningful work and its connection to impact and curiosity to learn, ethics, social engineering and the value of gut checks, ethics and asymmetries of power. Lastly, he shares his thoughts on positive relationships between academia and business, gives advice to academics moving into industry and industry considering to employ social scientists. We hope you enjoy it. Uh, hi, friends. We are here tonight with Leith um, Ulabi, uh, Director of User Experience Research for Udemy. Hi, Leith. Hi, how are you doing? <laughs> uh, a very, very cold uh, evening in Amsterdam today. Um, I just want to kind of break the ice and ask you to tell us, uh, I mean, me or our listeners, a little bit about you. Uh, what has your career path been so far with academia, applied research, technology? Yeah, great. It's been a, a bit of a, I think for a lot of folks working in this space, I've, I haven't had a direct straight line sort of path. So it's been, uh, it's sometimes fun to look back and think about sort of the, the twists and turns. So uh, going back a number of years, um, I, I was actually uh, in the in the performing arts and in, in the music space. And I became really interested in, um, as a musician, thinking about sort of where the music came from and, and the meanings and the, and the sort of context of music. And so um, I ended up doing a PhD in ethnomusicology. And so a lot of times people are like, what's ethnomusicology? Yeah. <laughs> and I've even had people think that that was epidemiology, which led to a funny uh, miscommunication. Um, so basically, you know, ethnomusicology, sometimes it's referred to as anthropology of music. So it's the idea of looking at music, not just as a sound, but as a cultural practice, as a social construct. Um, and, and through that lens. And I uh, really loved uh, being able to do that. You know, uh, from the name, you can probably guess it really relies heavily on ethnographic mm -hmm. methods and, and theory. And so uh, my, my interest was primarily in the Middle East. I did a lot of research uh, in the Middle East. Uh, and I was kind of looking at how governments were using uh, folk culture and technology as a way of creating a, a form of national identity. And then how different communities were using other music traditions and other technologies as a way of sort of resisting or creating sort of a, a counter narrative to that. Mm -hmm. So it was really fun. And, and I loved being in the ivory tower and, and the teaching and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it was really great. But I had the misfortune of graduating into the, the depths of the economic downturn. And I think I'd already sort of started to, to wonder what was beyond academia. Um, at least in the United States, there, there's some you know issues with the way academia works in terms of the rising tuitions and sort of things like that that doesn't always feel like a great fit for for me at least personally. So I was really lucky to get a, a fellowship uh, through the Mellon Foundation. They have these uh, 
sort of uh, postdoctoral fellowships for folks to, to get a little experience outside of, of academic context. And I was able to work in a, a think tank in Washington, D.C. Mm. that had this sort of stakeholder model to uh, tackling really challenging problems, whether it's international or, or domestic. Well, it really got me excited about getting, you know, into a more applied and hands-on kind of space. I also realized that that you know the the governmental space moves very slowly, and there's a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of frustrations with that. So it was fun, uh, and and I got to you know do projects that interacted with USAID and the State Department and and some other uh, functions there. But I was like, hey, you know, I've done the academic track, I've done the governmental track. In the background, I, I'd worked with a number of nonprofits uh, over the years, and I said, well, there's kind of one big category left, which is the the private industry. And so I started poking around there and, and it was really tough. Uh, mm. You know, I didn't have a, a traditional uh, HCI background. Mm. Uh, I didn't really have any experience working in the corporate world at all. And, you know, I, I probably sent out a few hundred resumes. And um, it's one of these funny things where uh, one of the hiring managers at, at this company, Answer Lab, which is a UX research consultancy, she had taken some ethnomusicology classes you know, when she was doing her undergrad degree. Yeah. And I think it, all it took was just that yeah. one level of connection or familiarity yeah. and was able to start a conversation and, and eventually uh, get a job there. So that was my first job in industry. Well, how have you experienced this transition um, like from, from you know, the way you work with research in a PhD uh, context to the way research is employed in, um, in the applied sector? Well, uh, I, I think that one of the things I've realized is that there there isn't one way in which things work. And so uh, in my career path, uh, like I mentioned, I started off at a consultancy mm. uh, at UX uh, called Answer Lab and, you know, in that sort of client vendor kind of, you know, uh, space. And then I went to a very large tech company. I was at Google. Mm. Then I went to a very small startup where I was the first researcher. Uh, then I was at uh, Uber for a time, and when I joined, it was a, a relatively small uh, research team, and it grew considerably in the time I was there. Uh, this summer, I was able to work. I was actually in the Netherlands myself. I was working at, with the United Nations for a couple months, and then more recently, I joined sort of what I would call like a, a mid-stage startup with, with Udemy. And, um, you know, especially uh, having been on the consulting side and seeing how you know, Wells Fargo does research or how, um, you know, Genentech does research or how Facebook does research. You know, one of the cool things about being on that consultancy side is you kind of get to peer behind the curtain yeah. of a bunch of different organizations. And the thing that's really struck me is the heterogeneity um, and, and sort of the traditions. Um, a, another theme that I'd really focus on is this kind of applied work that we're doing kind of gets lumped together, but we're really drawing from all these different social science traditions. Mm. I think that there's a lot of lip service to interdisciplinary work in academia, but very few of the incentive structures are there. And it's, it's actually really hard to do that. And I love working in industry because I get to work with, you know, a psychologist one day, a neuroscientist, mm. a statistician, an economist, you know, all these people. And I learned so much about how they frame problems and, and their methods and things like that. But I, I think that the, the consequence of that is if you're at a at a organization that the, the the sort of the core founding of it was really coming out of folks with like a psych background, it's going to actually feel very different than if the first few folks that started that team mm. had more of an ethnography or anthropology background. And not to say that one is better or one is worse, 
But it's just another sort of complicating factor of why there's so much diversity in the way this works. Um, even when you look at org charts, you know, is the, is the research team under marketing? Is the research team under product? Is the research team under design? Mm. Um, what's the relationship between data science and research and, you know, qualitative research or research? You know, all these things add, you know, complicating factors. And, and I think the upside there is that if there's someone that transitions into industry and that first job isn't mm. going well, it might just be that that particular one isn't a fit and it's not representative of all these other opportunities. And so you can kind of move around a little bit and, and, and find an organization that resonates with how, how you want to try and tackle problems. Can you still remember like your first win um, in applied work? I, I, I remember my first project very uh, clearly, um, you know, and it was definitely kind of had a little bit of that fake it till you, till you make it feel. And it was a project... <laughs> where I went and we were working with a client and I basically went by myself. So it was my first project that I'd ever done like this. Mm. And I was all by myself and I was at the client's site. And, um, you know, they were kind of looking to me as if I knew what I was talking about. And I totally <laughs> felt, you know, like a bit of a charlatan. Um, but I think that that's also where the, the skills and the experience I had doing field work in PhD were, were so useful, where I showed up in Bahrain or in Kuwait mm. and, just had to figure out how to, you know, navigate and, and get things and set up the logistics and everything. I think that kind of like uh, ability to improvise, ability to uh, think on your feet mm. uh, is, is super valuable. And I think that's one thing that's carried me through, especially that, that first part of my career was sort of being able to uh, dance. Were there also moments where you you felt you were operating, let's say, from still from the perspective of being inside academia? That's super interesting. I, for me, I, I I wouldn't say it was the opposite, but I think it was a little different because being mm. at the consultancy was um, sort of like a structure because they ah. sort of almost templatized uh, okay. certain parts of research, which was, again, super valuable for me because I was able to learn from folks that had a little bit more of that HCI and psych background. And it wasn't until I felt that I kind of got my legs under me mm. that I could then go back and pull in you know, some of the, the perspectives and, and approaches and, and ways of doing things from sort of this previous part of my life. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of like the, the, the combination is there, but maybe the sequence worked a little different for me. Yeah. And, and then when you actually started to um, control the tools that you were using and have more kind of agency of, of, of that type of a design, how, how did you use those tools How that come from academia? You know, I I have the same kind of feeling somehow when I try to use particular tools of ethnography that are not designed to operate within a really fast-paced environment. So you have to kind of, how do you, what are those tools and how do you apply them? And can you speak a bit to that experience? I, I think it's a great, great call out. You know, uh, I remember one of my professors in um, my PhD program was like, you never actually start doing good field work until you've returned for the third time. Mm. You know, in the sense that, in terms of the relationships, mm. in terms of the depth, the understanding. And there is something about the coming and going. And mm. and to and to propose a project in industry where you say, hey, I'm going to do three rounds of research before yeah. I really start getting anything in depth. Right. That's ridiculous. Yeah. So th there is something about the like the, the fast and the slow. And, and so much of the industry is about like, you know, turnaround and actionable insights. And mm. it's very sort of like. Dot, dot, dot. Mm. And so I think there's an inherent tension there that, that you have to navigate. Now, um, one thing that in, in, in some of the roles I've been in that I'm lucky, I think, is that um, there's opportunities for what you might call quick wins. 
And through those, you can build up sort of the social capital and the, and the, and the, the trust and the value that when you then identify something that needs a little more longevity and time mm. and investment, you know, hopefully you, you have some credibility and, and people can kind of trust you and sort of things like that. So I think it's harder for folks that are always operating at a very sort of strategic yeah. level because every project has risk. Things can go wrong with, mm. with getting the right participants, with getting the you know, so many things can go wrong. And and I think that the risk is lower on some of those tactical projects. So it's easier to kind of like build up that capital and then spend it. Whereas if you're always doing like the big strategic things, like I think it can just be more, more um, challenging. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have a question connected to that, that again, connects to my struggle in applied. Uh, some of the things that my stakeholders consider quick wins, I don't consider quick wins from my perspective. Mm. So for me, that is just simple bits of information that contribute to building a, a wider narrative or to constructing the bones of an argument. But I don't see it as a quick win. But when I start deconstructing part of my argument to some of my stakeholders, then they they connect to some of these pieces of information and they for them that has immense value and immediate actionable value. So I wonder how how have you experienced that? So you bring up another topic, which I've, I've sort of been mulling over in my head, and I, and I love this. So if especially when we're thinking about sort of the world of tech and HCI, mm. if you look at it historically, the, the, the earliest model was a lot oftentimes in this sort of like the Xerox research park, which is like, we're going to have this part of this campus and we're going to put all these innovators hmm. and we're going to sort of put them off into this other kind of thing. And they'd spend tremendous money and then, you know, not always see the reward. And you can sort of see the whole narrative about Apple basically being able to take all this stuff produced from Xerox park and make Apple successful and Xerox never capitalized on it. And then moving forward, you went into this phase where a lot of this work was done by consultants. And so you see the IDOs, you see the, um, you know, Bolt Peters, the company I worked at, Answer Lab, came along a little after that time period where the relationship was sort of this outsider consultant kind of thing. And especially in tech, you've really seen this push to build out large in-house teams really in the last 10 years at the most, you know, at, at any kind of rate, really in the last maybe four or five years. And I think the relationship that you have with the folks that you're working with is super important. And I know one thing I struggle with sometimes is I keep almost that like consultant relationship where it's like, and I think we have this in academia too, where I want to like disappear and work on something hmm. and then kind of bring this like perfectly wrapped. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> What you're speaking to is actually engaging stakeholders in the analysis yes. and the thought process. Yes. And, and along the way, hmm. it, it's so much deeper. And we actually see a parallel with that with sort of reflexivity and things like that in academia, where if we're doing research on a community, have them be part yeah, of the analysis yeah, process and, yeah. and, and share with them the report and things like that. So yeah, 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 I love that. And I have another question to that. How do you dissociate reflexivity from, from politics? Uh, you know, because I find it very, very difficult to uh, provoke or to guide reflexivity without it being confronting, without it being, um, you know, like connecting to, to, to interest and politics. And it's, you know, what do you got to lose if you are reflexive in that stakeholder context? And a lot if you look at it from the political perspective. So how, how do you deal with that? I think part of it is, 
like do your best to work at organizations that are going to be open to having that that kind of conversation. You know, I think mm. some are going to be more open than others and some teams more than others. Actually, going back to a point that you made earlier, like every time I've said this is going to be too academic for mm. folks to get into, but I do it anyway. I, I'm surprised by how willing people are to engage with it and learn by it and say, I've never thought about it. Mm. So I think, again, once you built up the trust to, to bring some of these ideas, now you have to mm. be careful on how you present it and be affable and kind and empathetic and how you engage with these ideas. Mm. But I think what I found, at least, is a lot of very smart people like engaging with complex notions. Yeah, yeah. I think is another associated thing is thinking about power relationships is something that can be uncomfortable for anyone. And I think in academia, so much of the literature is about power relationships mm. that we've gotten a little more used to it. And those in industry might not be quite as accustomed to thinking about things through those lenses. Yeah. But, but, but again, I think that, I think it's a really important conversation to have. Mm. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm sort of not answering the question yeah. because I think it's a tough one. And I think a lot of it is navigating individual personalities mm. of the folks that you're working with. Mm. But wow, I would love to see just generally us thinking about these kind of like power relationships uh, more in the work yeah. that we do. Yeah. I love that you talk about trust because I've, I've, I've experienced in my own work that trust can be a, a, a great enabler Um for, for building a space where, where you can put those things on the table and make them visible. But I was going to say piggybacking on that. I think another important thing is I think originally I saw my role as I impart knowledge in industry because mm -hmm. I'm the, the dude with the degree and whatever. And it's so much more powerful to be the facilitator. And, you know, I'm going to try and present some frameworks or ideas mm -hmm. and, encourage folks to embrace it and and delve in and do things. And that goes both with my research and, you know, sort of academic concepts. And to, to, to facilitate will almost always bring more value than to sort of didactically, you know, try and instruct. Yeah. I find, I find so difficult retrospectively thinking about this, trying to understand, will that type of work fit with my personality? So I've ha I constantly have these discussions with, with people from my team or, or, or people from the academic space that are excellent at deconstructing cultures, at observing behavior mm -hmm. and converting it into an, into a profound argument. And then they, they struggle with, with, applying it. They struggle with the politics. They struggle with the personality, with the positionality, with these games, you know, of relationships. And um, I think, you know, like, how do you, how do you start get a feeling of where do you find meaning? Where do you find pleasure in your work? You know, like some of my team tells me, okay, I just want right now to hide in a little cafe and do coding or to just open the software and start thinking. I don't, I don't want to have a conversation about sense making while I'm things making. Sure. <laughs> so yeah. How, how do you, um, how do you figure out for yourself, you know, like, Because if, if a lot of your applied research work involves all of this kind of, you know, um, weaving of, of social relationships and joint sense making, um, you gotta find pleasure in that a bit too, right? To still stay connected to the, to being, um, an ethnographer in the applied space. Well, I, I mean, to, to your first point, I'd say if you're worried about, uh, machinations and politics, You know, there are definitely some academic departments where, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> that's very strong. Not, yeah, it's not exclusive to industry. And and similarly, you know, I've had friends who were at uh, 
you know, second tier, we'll call them second tier for lack of a better term, uh, institutions with colleagues they loved. And then they got the offer at the very prestigious academic university and they went there and there was all this kind of mm. things and they could never actually concentrate on their work. And there were all these committee mm. assignments. And so, so I think that it, this is endemic of organizations. And yeah. so I think sometimes we set up a binary of like industry and not industry. Mm. Um, and there's horribly dysfunctional nonprofits and there's nonprofits that are a pleasure to work at. And then it's not just on an objective scale, there's a personal scale. So you walk in, you know, these tech companies love these open floor plans. And it's so interesting. You walk into some of these companies and it's it feels calm and people are working and there's little conversations and it almost feels like a library mm. and, and things like that. And you go into other uh, offices and it feels like, you know, kind of uh, like a sensory overload and these kind of things. Mm. I think some people are going to thrive more in one and thrive more in the other. Um, some companies have really tried to institute these things like a, a, no, a, a day of no meetings. So mm-hmm. like this, some companies have no meetings on Wednesdays. And the idea is that, you know, especially some people need that heads down time where they can delve into their work and have the time and not have the constant context switching. Um, I think the other really important thing there is your manager. It, 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 managers can make a big difference in terms of being able to shield you, get things off of your calendar and, and allow you the, both the time to network and engage and the time to, to feel like you can, you can get into the work. So hmm. um, I, I know it's hard when folks are trying to get their foot in the door for the first job, but, but hopefully after <laughs> that, you can start really evaluating companies on their culture and wh- where you'd fit and not just you know, letting them evaluate. Yeah. And and I also think, I think you're so right. And I think if you're working with people that have just come off a PhD or just come off a research master track, they also have an opinion of academia, which will not maybe stand uh, if they stay inside academia as an assistant professor or if they go out, because that's when you get really feel the organizational pressures that are very similar to the, could be very similar also to the applied sector. But when you're, you know, right on that track, finish the PhD, I can't stay in academia, I want to try applied. You have this, I think, idealized view of what the academic space can do for you, you know? And, and I find myself slipping into that too. I've been really lucky in that I've been able to keep a little bit of a, you know, one foot or one toe in hmm. academia and just teaching uh, as I, uh, after I graduated uh, at a few different institutions. And um, yeah, like, you know, you, you get reminded of, of some of that and you're like, okay, you know, it gives me a better perspective uh, as well. What is meaningful impact for you? How, how do you define it? And what, what kind of food fuels you in your day-to-day work? I'd say there, there's a few challenge. There's a few challenges, which are, I think I, for me personally, I get a lot of meaning from, from sort of challenges. Mm. Um, there is the, this whole suite of skills you have to develop working in industry. Uh, like I said before, I'm, I'm having to do uh, social science methods that I didn't necessarily learn in grad school and I've had to learn outside of it. And, and that the list is infinite because there's, you can both go broad and, and, and you can mm. go deep. Uh, beyond that, you know, uh, I work so closely with designers. I've had to learn so much about design and human-centered design and, you know, uh, color theory and, you know, all these kind of things. There's a whole kettle there. Um, a, a little less on the technical engineering side, but I've had to learn, you know, to be a, a good collaborator. I've had to mm. learn some of that. And then, of course, all the the, the business uh, kind of things, you know, that these companies are trying to make a profit and understanding, you know, business metrics and how business models and, and all these kind of things. So, 
you know, if you're someone who likes learning, there's there's so many things to, to learn from. Um, and then the other one is, is is still getting the chance to impact. The, the, the thing about technology today is a relatively small group of people can have a profound impact on a massive number of people in the world. Mm. And so having those conversations where no one cried in an interview that I did in academia until I was maybe five or six years into my career. And not that this is a, a good metric, but in every job pretty much I've had in industry, I've had at least one really emotional interview where someone cried because the experience was so profound for them. I remember uh, doing a project for a logistics company and we were trying to understand the workflow and how people were you know, using the software and navigating all the space. And, and we got to the story about, well, you know, how did you learn how to use this really complex enterprise software? And this guy told this story about how he'd basically been like the, the janitor and the, the previous head of this logistics operation had taken this guy under his wing, basically become like a second father to him, taught him this software, showed him how to move into this industry. And so for him, it, was, it wasn't just about economic opportunity. It was about this, this father figure that he'd lost. And that's just one example. Like I've had so many of those examples about like um, uh, this allowed me to, to change my station in life, you know, like uh, in terms of economic opportunity or something like that. Now, there's a lot of equally frustrating and sad experiences, too. I remember talking with one woman and she wasn't really giving very um, verbose feedback. And I was really trying to coax her into, you know, helping me kind of understand. And, you know, she's like, they don't make uh, apps like this for people like me. So why does it matter what my opinion is? And that's like a heartbreaking, mm. you know, moment. But so I guess to, to talk about the meaningfulness, like to, to talk with people on these very intimate levels and, and learn their stories and their experiences, uh, it's really a, a privilege and, it, and it's incredibly powerful to, 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 to see the world through their eyes in a way that you, you never would otherwise. So I guess for me, that's another really um, meaningful part of the, the experience. Mm-hmm. And then I'll just tack on one quick one at the end, which is I think earlier in my career, I saw myself as a researcher and I've increasingly seen myself as a builder. And I might not know how to code and I might not know how to design, but I'm part of a team that's creating things and building things. And so having the pride in, in trying to create really good products and experiences, um, I think is the, the the pride that you can see with someone who, who does pottery or woodworking or, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a similar kind of thing. So I, I think those are kind of like the three buckets of, of places I get I get meaning. Yeah. How do you link that to, to ethics or do you link that somehow to ethics? This is a big one. It's something I'm actually working on right now. Um, I, I, I think that there is a set of ethics training for academics there's been a few attempts at, 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 at thinking through some of the ethical considerations in industry, but I, I think that there needs to be a lot more. I think that not all of the academic, you know, the Nuremberg and Helsinki and, mm -hmm. and Belmont, I don't know if all that maps uh, perfectly into the industries and to the situations that we're working in. I think it's a great foundation, great mm -hmm. principles. Um, you know, I know UXPA, for instance, and some of the market research organizations have, you know, code of ethics. And again, I think it's a great place to start. But again, as we're leveraging these diverse methods from all these different uh, things, you know, I don't know the, you know, I didn't receive the training for the nuts and bolts of doing, you know, psych, psych research. Yeah. And people with a psych 
background didn't get the nuts and bolts of, of the ethical considerations of doing ethnography. Yeah. And, you know, that's at a very coarse level. You know, you could get even more granular. So um, I think there's tons of ethical pitfalls and considerations. And, and I think it's one area that we as a community mm. need to do some, some maturation in making sure that we're really thinking through all of that. I was reading an article that talked about um, the ethics of social engineering technology products. Yeah. yeah, and and it was it was a really hard read for me because it, at the end you kind of start thinking about you know like how do you navigate all of these consequences or potential consequences of of, of the active actions that we do uh, not necessarily as an individual but as a as a group you know um, and because and, and groups in general because uh, all of the social engineering is almost like a contract that happens between us and our audiences it's not just like You put the blame on one or the other at, at the results, but we as a, as, a, as a collective kind of together weave these products and this usage and these moments, and then it can end up in a space that nobody is happy. <laughs> so, yeah, I wonder, I wonder how do you, what do you think about social engineering? Well, uh, for me, just to take a, a slight step back, because I think you raised something really interesting. And that's that when I think about these things, I think that being able to recognize there is a problem or something is not mm. ethical and then being able to categorize it mm. is super useful. Because sometimes we have this like gut sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, is this really? You yeah, know, yeah, right? yeah. And, yeah. And if you can't fit it in a, in a sort of a typology or a schema, I think it's harder to act on it. So mm. there's two resources that I would really encourage folks to check out. On the design side of things, it's darkpatterns.org. Mm. And they do a great job, again, of not just calling out some of this social engineering, but creating a typology. And so you can say, oh, this is a road yeah, to yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, again, I think that's a powerful tool. Another one is called the uh, Ethical OS. And I think the website is ethicalos.org. And so theirs is really from a, um, from a uh, business perspective. What are the different sort of business practices, especially that tech is 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 liable to uh, fall into, that 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 could be these kind of things. And again, having that that kind of typology, and uh, you know, they have these examples of like truth, disinformation, and propaganda, addiction, and the dopamine economy, mm. economic and asset inequality, machine ethics and algorithmic biases, mm. surveillance state, data control and monetization. Implicit trust and user understanding, uh, hateful and criminal actors. And so, again, just by, you know, and they, they have write-ups on all these kind of things. And by understanding what they mean by this and having that typology, um, it's something I'm really encouraging my team and the design team and some other folks. Uh, and it also gives us a shared language, being yeah. able to say, like, rather than that, seem, that feels kind of skeevy, you can be like, that feels a little like X. Now, yeah. let's judge if we're actually doing X yes. or if it's not X. Um, yes. Because I think... That can be the hard part is like, how do you move forward past the gut sense? I, I also Sorry, have found, like, um, I also have found a collection to connection to academia quite useful in that space. So um, I'm, we are experimenting now with kind of like an ethics uh, advisor uh, with the university that we have set kind of like milestones on, on particular difficult projects where we, uh, where we link back to the university, to this ethics advisor, which is a professor. Um, and we have to, we discuss the, the existing milestone of the project and what are, what is our gut feeling? Like you mentioned it. And he helps us 
categorize it. Or he, he asks the right questions and he, he puts us into a frame where we can categorize. And I have found that very useful. That, that's incredible. I, I, I love that. And I, I think the other lesson we, we can draw from that is also thinking about the, the kind of relationships. Uh, yeah. You know, I've always thought that it, it's harder to do unethical relationship in the enterprise space mm. because I'll just pick two random companies. They both have an army of lawyers. They both have all yeah. these, you know, people. And any relationship that they have is going to be mutually advantageous and everything like that. So mm. in some ways, the sort of social engineering and ethical kind of things are, are less likely. I mean, you still have to be aware of them and everything, but less likely. And I think that the challenge is once you start going to consumers, the asymmetry of power is. Yeah, so, yeah, uh, yeah. Thing. The other thing is, I think earlier on, uh, companies would first only make apps for iPhone users because that's where the money was. And if you're sort of trying to, if you're a new startup, mm. you know, you want to get those those more wealthy iPhone users, and then you'll do Android. And now you're seeing companies that are are targeting, you know, emerging markets, targeting folks that are in different places in terms of socioeconomic status. And I think that's where the ethical considerations become even yeah. more important. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I love the idea of being able to get sort of an outside sanity check or perspective or, or you know, think through some of these things. Almost yeah. like a little, you know, mini IRB process. Exactly. Uh, fabulous. I love that you're talking about the asymmetry of power because we are actually struggling with this right now. Uh, because if, if this asymmetry of power is, is strong with consumer, imagine how it is when your consumers are your employees. Yeah, that's that's incredibly tough. And and I know there's sort of the, the boilerplate, you know, kind of things, you know, like don't have their direct manager, like, you know, right there in the report mm. and things like that. But yeah, I, I think it's super tough. And, and, and again, you know, if you're operating in a company where the employees assume good intent mm. of the of the of the management staff, it's probably yeah. a lot easier. Yes, but I can yes. see why in a lot of organizations, it would be really hard to do that because there just is such a trust deficit. What do you think, how have you seen this link between academia and industry working um, positively? Um, like when they build projects together or when the, the knowledge that is produced within the academic space somehow jointly infuses the, the industry. Um, how have you seen that? It's interesting. I mean, I, I know that there's things like at, at the School of Information at Berkeley, you know, there's mm. things where corporations will, will give a grant to fund research in academia on a certain topic. I'm not convinced that it's really filtering back in most organizations to actually change things. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of it is more about trying to create a, a talent pool they can recruit from for future employees and things like that. Um, I'm sure there's exceptions, you know. Um, I, I think it's really hard. And, and maybe it's folks like us that have worked on both sides that, that need to do a better job of the bridge building. Because I think that sometimes the the you know, the chair of X department who's never worked in industry, it's really going to be hard for them to understand how to navigate and position to be involved. Now, you know, maybe there's an argument that that they shouldn't be doing that, you know, that it's there's a, a tainting kind of effect that can happen. Um, uh, I, I think those those tie-ups are, are are fraught with with difficulty in the social sciences. I think it might be a little easier to pull off in the biotech and engineering and, and things like that. Um, uh, I'm curious. Yeah, have you seen any really, you know, uh, admirable examples of, of collaborations like that? Uh, well, I've seen similar examples to what you mentioned, like companies, um, uh, companies um, 
sponsoring, giving grants to PhDs to work on areas of research that they're interested in um, and using it, as you said, as a, as a way to recruit people in. Um, but actual like joint knowledge building um, or kind of, yeah, joint knowledge building, I, I haven't seen it yet, but I'd love to see it. And I also think I, th I think sometimes, particularly my experience with academic anthropology has been that it's, it's also a very privileged position that has a certain element of blindness to it because of its privilege. The informants that you, I've, I've my personal experience, you're never, you're so much more powerful than your informants. You're so much more powerful than your field site. And you are not held accountable to that field site. You're held accountable to the gods of, of the knowledge. You're not accountable to your field site. And I think in that extent, being held accountable to your field site, as you have in the applied sector, comes with advantages and, and, and be challenges. But I think that there's something to it that I think can also benefit academic, the academic space itself. When it comes to certain topics, when it comes to certain uh, ways of doing ethnography, there's, there's a certain arrogance still embedded in those methods and the way they are used, you know? I think that's that's 100% correct. And and it's funny because, you know, every once in a while I do get a little, you know, flack from some of my friends who are still operating primarily in academia. Mm -hmm. And it, it always gets uncomfortable when I when I, you know, bring up some things like the, the you know, the, the colonial, the use of social sciences for the, you know, colonial mm -hmm. uh, past. Um, you know, this is a big black mark on, on, on academia. And so to pretend that they sort of operate above you know, any level of symbolic or actual violence, mm. you know, I think is, is, you know, like, uh, it, it, it strains credulity, I yeah. guess is, is yeah. how you put it. And then the other side is, you know, you're talking about working with employees. I, sometimes I'm, I'm really saddened by the the lack of seeing the grad students and even the undergrads as stakeholders and, and, and facilitating them, um, which I think is, is important. They know they're producing more PhDs than there are jobs, but mm. there's very little time to, you know, prepare folks for non-academic tracks because it's seen, it somehow like devalues their own work and things like that too. So, um, yeah, I think there's some, some, I think it's, it's cool to have gone through that process, stepped outside and offer, I think we, we can also offer like a valuable critique of, yeah. of, sort of uh, the ivory tower as well. I think so. I, I really have one of the things that really drives me and to the podcast, but also to the work that I do is, is, uh, is I really believe that there's a certain hu humbleness and humility about being an applied ethnographer in the, in the, in the applied space. You know, because time and time again, remember that power hierarchy and disbalance between the field site and you as a researcher gets corrected. So I like that. You know, I feel personally for myself that it makes me a better ethnographer, um, because, um, it puts me on a, on a level of service that I, that I do not feel as strongly when I'm inside the academic space. I, I don't feel that I am a service to my field site. I feel that I'm a service to something else. So, um, yeah. I, I love that, you know, and, and I think that, that there are the, the very few isolated academics who, who have really embraced that challenge and gone above and hmm. beyond. Yeah. And, and everything, but but I think they're notable because they're exceptional. Yeah, yeah. And, and I totally agree with you that it to it refigures your relationship with with the the folks that you're collaborating with. Uh, yeah, and and for the good and for the bad, right? Because yeah. because you're also it's very hard then to be um, on a position on a positionality which 
which truly makes you objective as much as that it's even possible. But um, I think you can't, you are inside hierarchies of power that, that, that shape the, your view for the good and for the bad. Um, so I think that is, that is challenging. Um, but still, it really, for me personally, it really depends what fuels you as an ethnographer, what fuels you individually, right? So it's so important to find like that fountain of motivation and, and value that you have as an individual and connect it to your work, right? Because what fuels me might not fuel you, but then that in the end, kind of like it all makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And I think it's important to identify, yeah, what, what parts of the ethnographic endeavor or whatever your, your social science background is that, 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 uh, um, excites you. Yeah, yeah. How would you, for those of our listeners that are still, let's say, in academia, kind of looking, trying to find, to, to figure out, okay, would the polite sector be for me? Like, how would you advise them to start that process? Like, what, what would be a, a good way that, that you would say? I think, you know, these kind of podcasts are super, super valuable, you know, being able to hear the the perspective, um, you know, and some of it is like learning the Shibboleth, right? Like learning the mm. jargon and the lingo and things like that. I think that's valuable. And then just, just like do it, you know, mm. like go find a local nonprofit that has a website and see if you can help them figure out how to make that website better or, you know, can you go to your, if you're in a really small town, I, I, I heard about someone that did this. They went to a really small town they lived in and there was some like um, service that that government, the local government had. And they said, Hey, can I hang out and sort of try and volunteer and kind of try and figure out. And they kind of did like a service design project. You know, mm-hmm. I think that finding opportunities to, to do some of the work um, and creating those opportunities is, is super valuable. And then, you know, there, there, I mean, people are, are, are lucky now. There's a lot of, I think, decent resources um, where you can learn from your perspectives. Um, but it, it, there, there really is a chasm. You know, we have this, this challenge where companies don't want to invest in developing folks. And so um, when you see job postings, so many of them are like mid to senior and above. Mm-hmm. And there's not as many entry level jobs. But there's a systemic thing that we need to, to think about because I think that also shuts out a level of diversity of the kind of people that we ended up ultimately hiring and bringing into this community. So there's a real um, challenge there that that I don't I don't have the answer to, yeah. but I, I think it exists. Yeah. So how could I know you said you don't have the answer, but let's say I'm like a small small tech tech company or small to medium size, not the size of Facebook or Google. Like how do I how do I start doing that? How can I how, how can I do it in, a, in an easy way, in a fast way and experiment with this? So one thing I have seen is I, I think it was Slack uh, mm-hmm. or, or I, I think so. And when they posted their internship program, you didn't have to be a current student somewhere. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think one of the challenges is some folks, they finish their Ph.D., they kind of are applying for jobs for a yeah. year or two. Yeah. And then by the time they find out that they could apply for an internship, they're not eligible anymore. At least in the U.S., you usually have to either be in a program or just graduate. So I think one thing smaller programs can do is say, hey, we're going to take a, a chance. It's an internship. If it doesn't work out, it's not the end of the world. But we might be able to find someone non-traditional who has like amazing skills. Hmm. Um, I think the, the second part is really figuring out like the sector that you're working in. If, uh, if you're working in, in, uh, in your product has started to be really successful in Brazil, you know, maybe you can find someone from Brazil who normally wouldn't be able to access 
um, tech jobs in, in, in the U S mm-hmm. or something like that too, but, but they will bring this wealth of knowledge and expertise and background and, and kind of things like that as well. And, and similarly, you know, I, I've seen folks that have backgrounds in like, um, you know, early child, you know, um, uh, education or something like that. Well, there, there's startups that, that are trying to tackle that and that, that, large amount of subject matter expertise might be what that person needs to kind of get started in, in that yeah. in that industry. So, you know, don't totally run away from the, I, I think sometimes also like when you're going through grad school, a lot of the people you're around are also in grad school and you kind of assume that like, of course everyone is up on like, you know, like the politics of like Ghana right yeah. now, you know, <laughs> all my friends are like doing research in Burkina Faso and Senegal and, yeah. and this kind of thing. Right. And then you realize like, oh, actually, we're, we're total outliers for people that are living in the Netherlands or the United States or whatever it is. And so if there is some company that's really trying to do something interesting in West Africa, like don't discount that like uh, expertise that mm. you have. Um, the other thing is like with researchers, like I was saying before, we have to learn so many different kinds of skills that no one is going to start their career being great at all of them. Mm. You know, we, we're all going to have different gaps and, and things that we're not good at. So, you know, uh, you know, just as a strategy thinking about how you, you want to tackle that. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Like what, what's, what's, where can folks hear you talk more about this beautiful world of, um, applied research and do you, do you normally do conferences or master talks or stuff like that? Or, um, not a ton. I actually just posted a, a medium series with a, with a friend of mine, Grace, about how to get started in UX research mm-hmm. um, on medium. So uh, that's one where I, place I've been trying to share some of, uh, of my perspective. Um, uh, I teach at UC Berkeley. I teach at the UC Berkeley Extension. Um, and I, I, as I mentioned before, I'm just starting to try and put together a, a training on, on research ethics, uh, applied research ethics. But uh, probably be a few more weeks before that starts rolling out. So uh, hopefully stay tuned for that. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was a really fun conversation and I, I love nerding out about these kind of topics. So <laughs> yeah, thank you so much, Leith. And um, yeah, see you soon. Sounds good. All right, thank you. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.